Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Lisa Lodwick from the University of Oxford. As she discusses on today's show, Lisa's main area of research is plant remains from late Iron Age and Roman sites, an area of study that has really taken off in recent times, given the advent of commercial archaeology and all the new data this has provided us with. So now we're getting a much better idea of what people ate and how produce moved around, which of course can tell us things about how healthy people were and the interconnectivity between different regions. As such, we're building a more rounded picture of life in the Roman world, particularly in rural areas which have long been neglected, which is quite surprising when you think about it, given the vast majority of people in the Roman Empire lived uh, in the countryside. Lisa also chats about other projects she's been involved in, such as the Rural Settlement of Roman Britain project and the Silchester excavations, although she missed yours truly at the latter by a year or so. And of course, we're talking track, which is approaching its 30th birthday next year in Split. Yay! Lisa has been a standing committee member for Track for five years and currently serves as editor-in-chief for its recently launched journal, which also gets us on to big questions about open access. Also, as a long-time Oxford resident, she throws in some punting advice. So as always, thanks for joining me and enjoy the show. Okay. What, what's the balance like on a punt? Is it quite easy to... Do you feel like you're about to flip over at any point or is it quite... Um, it's, the balance is generally fine if you've got... So you can fit six people, but then it gets really hard to manoeuvre. And if they stand up and move, then yeah, the, the balance gets a bit... Yeah, it's not ideal. I wouldn't take anything you really care about. Okay. Yeah. Leave the phone to, to one side yeah. then. No. Although, I was thinking about this the other day with phones now, because everything's backed up on, like, iCloud and everything anyway, so actually, if you lose your phone now, you don't, I mean, if you drop it in the water, it's not like you lose all your photos and everything, you can get yeah. them back quite easily. Oh, the joys of living in 2019, eh? Yeah. It can kind of boom my whole experience. Oh wow! <laughs> I did. I didn't realize it got so intense. <laughs> it's like being passed away with somebody at sea. But <laughs> yeah, choose carefully. Um, so yeah. So how many? How long have you actually lived around the Oxford area? Because we were saying earlier you were in. You yes. you went to Oxford. And then you moved to Reddit and you, well, I'm guessing you lived in Oxford when you were doing undergraduate, etc. or whatever. Were you from Oxford originally? Or, no, or area? I'm from, or? The, from the south coast, so I'm Bournemouth. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, and then um, I moved up to Oxford for undergrad, masters, and then um, PhD. And then I moved down to Farnborough towards the end. And then I moved, well, I stayed in Farnborough and commuted to Reading because that's the joys of short term job contracts and then I moved to Reading and I got a job in Oxford okay yeah. what was 
What was it, where you come from originally, like, when you moved to Oxford, was that a bit of a change in terms of, because you were yeah. saying earlier, like, Oxford's like, obviously very, very touristy. Yeah. Uh, it was, was that a bit of a change? You were just saying a minute ago, like, about the whole walking from one side to the other and always bumping yeah. into people as well. I mean, yeah, I guess it's a huge change. I was used to living, like, almost like a kind of big urban, well, urban sprawl of seaside tourism. Um, and yeah, you're just used to having to like walk for three miles or to get a bus to get into town. Um, but there was a huge beach and like loads to do. And then Oxford is, yeah, small. Um, and like the way like the cottage system works is it's really good in a way for like making friends and like you get really good quality teaching in some ways. But um, it's also like really quite intense so you have like eight week terms um and you're pretty much working most days um yeah so it's it's really great in some ways but it's also very kind of quite full on mm. quite big yeah but there's lots of great people to support you through that so. i was gonna say it's expensive as well that's the one thing i, yeah, I know so yeah so unlike other universities you tend to live in college accommodation for well either three years or kind of two years, depending on how much housing your college has, which is kind of good. It's often more affordable, so you don't have to, like, rent houses for whole years and you don't have to worry about, like, letting agent fees and stuff. But, um, yeah, it means you have to go home in the vacation. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so you have, what, an eight-week term? And you might come up a few days before and have a few days after, but, yeah, you have to go home. But some colleges... Um, are offering more kind of um, like vacation time, like internships. So I've got a student at the moment who's an undergrad who has a research internship for a month. So she gets free accommodation from the college, free food, nice. which is great. Otherwise, it's quite hard for them to get much kind of experience alongside the main degree. Yeah. It's just what I was saying earlier when I started working for Oxford Archaeology and I came up to the, the office and you realise how expensive it is in Oxford. You're like, on a commercial archaeologist wage, you, you can't afford to actually live in Oxford. Like, if you work with them, you have to live somewhere else and actually commute in to get to the office because it's so yeah. ridiculously expensive around there. It's ridiculous. Yeah, like, most most postdocs I know commute in from either, like, some little villages outside, like Ensham, or they live in Reading or Banbury. Yeah, because, I mean, it's just ridiculously expensive which is it's not yeah it's a problem for anyone working in a university but it's a huge problem for like you know anyone else trying to live in Oxford because you can't afford to get a house and the houses are crap (laughs) but yeah like there's really bad condition rental property and that's another thing to complain about (laughs) Um, the, the trials of being uh, academic in Oxford. You don't, you, everyone thinks that it's the, the the place to be, but it has its own struggles as well. I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's very sheltered from many of the kind of, um, I guess, challenges of um, academia in many ways, but, yeah, different, different sets of challenges. Yeah. So... Tell me about what you're doing at the moment in terms of your, your project at Oxford. So your project at Oxford is quantifying cereal cultivation and processing in the Northwestern Roman Empire, although pro- provisional title, if I'm correct. Yeah, a provisional title, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, just actually, before we actually jump into that, just to give a quick bit of background, like, because obviously the main kind of area that you focus on is archaeobotany. What is archaeobotany? So archaeobotany is a study of archaeological plant remains. So um, that can either be um, big bits, so plant macrofossils, so cereal grains, seeds, nutshell, and that kind of thing, or um, plant micro microfossils, so things like pollen, starch, phytolips. So I focus on the plant macrofossils. So we, you know, we take samples from archaeological sites, identify um, the plant remains that we find. So it could be um, like fruits and flavorings that you find in cesspits. It could be uh, cereal grains that you might find from farm sites. Um, it could be kind of ritual offerings if you're looking at a temple or that kind of thing. Um, and then we can kind of reconstruct, well, try to reconstruct a whole range of, you know, different parts of ancient life basically and then what I'm doing at the moment is using unstable isotope analysis and weird ecology analysis to try and get a more detailed handle on um, farming practice so how people grew their crops and how that changed from the Iron Age to the Roman period and how it differed between different settlement types in different regions which yeah mm. there's two kind of aspects to that like just to start with I guess which is one why the Iron Age slash Roman period, and then the other one is why, uh, like, why did you get into archaeobotany? So, I get, which, which one came first? Were you kind of erring uh, more towards archaeobotany, and then you got into that the period wise, or was it period wise, and then led on to that particular area of study? So it was actually like broad research question. So I was always very interested in kind of farming and the relationship between farming practice and social organisation and community organisation and like identity and like broader aspects of urbanisation and climate change etc and then I found archaeobotany so my first um, undergrad field work was at Herculaneum and we were processing so doing the environmental processing of the contents of the Cardo 5 silver which is an amazing um, treasure trove of mineralized plant remains so um uh, my colleague Erica Rowan did her PhD on it and it's like an incredible assemblage so I spent four weeks um sieving and sorting through basically sewer residues which is fantastic and I really enjoyed it um and then I did a lot of Neolithic and Bronze Age options um with Amy Bogard who's an incredible archaeobotanist here I was like this is great and then I was also really into Iron Age and Roman archaeology and I figured that it would be really cool to use archaeobotany to look at the kind of late Iron Age transition and what was happening in terms of agriculture but also food consumption. Yeah, so I decided to, I guess, specialise for my Masters. So I did um, options here in archaeobotany and I did a dissertation doing archaeobotanical analysis at Silchester and then I was like, this is fantastic. (laughs) decided to do a PhD on it. So yeah, kind of like a gradual, I guess, focusing in. Because it is quite niche in some ways. Did you actually come from a background? Like you were saying, like coming from Bournemouth, where did you spend a lot of time around agriculture when you were younger or whatever? <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not from a farming background. Um, no, but at, so at school, I was always interested in both, um, I guess, more scientific subjects and then humanities. So I did... My A-levels on uh, biology and geography and history and a bit of German. So I was always quite kind of broadly interested in like biology and plants. 
Yeah, and then it just kind of, it's really interesting, I think, you know, how people farm and what they eat is such a hugely important part of daily life that how can it not be a hugely important part of how, like, societies work, especially smaller-scale societies. And, you know, so much of Roman archaeology is looking at very much, like, top-down um, social structures and provincial-level organisation. I think it's really important to also look at more bottom-up approaches. And if you're going to do that, so, OK, you could look at, say, material culture and approaches and all of that amazing work on um, social identity, but equally, you know, what we should really be looking at is like what people spend most of their time doing, which in rural societies, but well, many rural societies would be farming. So, yeah, I think it's pretty important. Yeah, I was wondering, like, archaeobotany is a, an area of, area of um, study. How, yeah. how long has it actually really been a thing? Like, I mean, is it, is it quite a recent avenue of research that's developed or has it been going on for quite some time? I mean, obviously... You know, you talk about isotope analysis, that's stuff that's only come about more recently. But, I mean, broadly speaking, is that something that only, you would say, people have developed more of a stronger interest in recently? Yeah, I mean, so people have been picking up seeds and bits and bobs from excavations since, like, the late 19th century. But in about the late 1970s, it really um, developed as a more, like, systematic method in kind of northwestern Europe. So people started using flotation tanks. So we can now recover, you know, lots of plant remains in a very, um, what's the word, consistent way. And for the first time, you could get plant remains out of contacts, which weren't obviously full of seeds. So it had a huge impact in prehistoric archaeology initially, especially in the Middle East. And then um, in Britain, the first kind of major applications would have been sites in the Upper Thames Valley. So places like Barton Court Farm and Farmore and Asheville. So that work was done kind of late 70s, early 80s by people like Marty Jones and Mark Robinson. So yeah, in Britain, it's very much like late 70s onwards, whereas in classical archaeology, it's really like the last decade or so, and at many sites there still isn't routine sampling. Um, so I think it's very much depending on what the major research questions are in that kind of area of archaeology. So in, say, prehistory, knowing what crops were domesticated and what crops were grown is, like, hugely important for, like, understanding the Neolithic, whereas much of kind of more, I guess, classical archaeology is being, it's not really being as focused on those kinds of questions. So, Do you think that's also quite broadly representative of the fact that in for looking for example at Rome in Britain, would, uh-huh. the kind of rural life is something that seems to me that's only recently started to really take off as an area of study as well. Like, you know, people have always talked about villas, but I can't remember who it was that said it, like looking at villas in Rome in Britain is looking at modern societies being represented by people that drive drive land rovers and the Cotswolds. Like, you know, it's a very yeah. small small percentage of rural yeah. society lives in villas and the rest of it is all just kind of like farmsteads and, you know, open settlements, etc. Do you think that's kind of part of it as well? That you, As you're saying, like a lot of it's about the top-down, like kind of very imperial narratives and you're more interested about what's going on on the ground. Yeah, I guess in Britain we are, you know, I don't know if lucky is the right term, but, you know, developer-funded archaeology since PPG 16 has meant that we have masses of rural settlements and the majority of them have also had you know, amazing environmental work. So we do have this amazing data set to play with. 
So it does definitely lend itself more to archaeobotany, whereas in the regions of Aroma Wild, where rural archaeology is much more based on survey, then yeah, you're not going to be able to collect that kind of data. You know, you really need large scale excavations, especially of kind of um, the more backyard areas. So if you're excavating within villa buildings, you know, there's not going to be much in the way of carbonized plant remains. Whereas if you're doing a more, you know, random sampling approach as developer-funded archaeology is done, then, you know, we're going to also get the pits, the processing areas, like the grain drying ovens. So, um, yeah, I think the methodologies helped find, you know, really amazing archaeobotanical assemblages. Because you were part of the uh, Roman, the rural settlement of Roman Britain project. Yeah, uh, so I was lucky to join it kind of um, about halfway, halfway along. So um, after finishing my PhD, I went down to the University of Reading to work both on the Silchester projects, but also on the Roman rural settlement project. So I, um, yeah, thankfully, well, I missed. But I skipped most of the kind of main data collection. So the three postdocs, um, Alex Smith, Martin Allen, and Tom Brindle, did an amazing job. You know, basically reading every excavation report from every rural excavation, which is a lot. Uh, <laughs> um, and so I did the small town aspect, or I should now say, defended nucleated site aspect. Um, are we not quick, are they not small? They're not small towns anymore. Are we? They're not small towns anymore. Oh, okay. so I think I should double check the terminology, but I think yeah, defended nucleus like that article just out in Britannia. Um, yeah. So, but hey, data collection is fun, and then um, worked on writing up the results for the second book. So, um, rural economy of Roman Britain. Um, so that's got big chunks about plant and horticulture and textile processing and then bits of the third volume which is about what is it called the lifestyle of the life of people of Roman Britain oh. <laughs> title we didn't have we didn't have copies of them here at Kent until last year when I took over doing Roman Britain and then I got the library to get copies so there you go <laughs> I'm just going to remember what the title is it's like the life, life and death in the countryside of Roman Britain yeah, that, no, they're, all, they're fantastic. That one's on the way, though. That one's not come out yet. Excellent. Yeah, so that was a great project to be involved in. And, yeah, just the sheer wealth of data is, yeah, incredible. Yeah. Okay. Um, just to go back, so uh-huh. when did you first hear about Silchester? Um, how, did, how did that end up happening? How many, actually, it's also just quickly, how many, how many years did you do at Silchester? Did you do quite a few of them? I mean, it went on forever and it's still going. But... Still going. Um, <laughs> so I, only, I only did um, four, okay. four years, so oh, kind of five and a bit. Well, 2009 through to 2013. Okay. Oh, so your, your first year was 2009. Okay. Yeah, oh. but I, I just went through it. Yeah, anyway, so I was, I finished up my undergrad, I decided that I wanted to do archaeobotany, and I was interested in the Iron Age, and um, my net, well, later PhD supervisor, who was doing the archaeobotany on the site, and he's like, well, look, I've got loads of samples, and it's really interesting, 
So we popped down to visit and I was like, this is incredible, like sheer scale of excavation. And they were just uncovering like the late Iron Age trackway. And that was really cool. Yeah, so um, I did a master's on it and then spent the next few summers working um, at the flotation tank, which was fun. And yeah, it's still going. So um, your summer they're excavating at the bathhouse. Yeah. There's an open day coming up. <laughs> Can't quite remember when. Sunday in July. But yeah, no, it's an incredible how much of a structure is surviving still. They've also done recent work on the temples there as well. They actually got some dating yeah. evidence for them as well, yeah. Yeah, so um, 20, what, you know, 2016, 17? Yeah, yeah and, and there's been a whole... Um, in Ryman's project looking at prehistoric settlement and activity in the wider landscape, which is really interesting. So yeah, there's, I think it's, yeah, there's just so much more to find out about the site in the area. It's, yeah, mm. incredible. I was there in 2007 and 2008. Oh, um, lovely. So is that during your undergrad? Yeah, well, I mean, because I did it at Reading, so you had to in your first year go to Silchester. It was like mandatory. And um, and then the following year, you just tend to go back because everybody has a good time and everyone wants to go back and just hang out on the field again for like a month or a couple of months. And yeah, but also, I think so the replacement and training scheme that they have at Reading is really good. So yeah. like, second years can get paid and kind of learn to be um, yeah. supervisors, which is great. Yeah. So what area were you working in? I cannot remember. <laughs> I was... <laughs> what what? Of archaeology was it? It was... Obviously, when I started, it was a lot of the Roman layers, I think, had gone by that point, or at least where I was working, and it was getting down to more in the way of late Iron Age stuff. I mean, I've got to be honest, I mean, I spent a lot of time at Silchester, probably a little bit worse for wear. <laughs> I was going to say that, funnily, funnily enough, just on a, on, a, on a slight side note to that, here at Kent, um, we have uh, Gabor Thomas coming down next week to kick off another uh, season at Luminge as well, so... Uh, with yeah. uh, Reading students, but also a couple of Kent students are joining them as well because uh, he was here before we went to Reading as well. So there's that link. But yeah, I did Laminge actually in my last year of undergraduate rather than Silchester. So not to, not to turn my back on Silchester, but uh, I've got a bit, a bit of variety, some Anglo-Saxon stuff as well. Uh, that's why I ended up in late antiquity because it was kind of the midpoint between between. Yeah. How did you find Silchester though? Good. Um, long time ago now. Yeah. No. I mean it's. You know, such a big scale excavation is great in many ways. You know, just trying to like, understand a site like Silchester, you know, if you just did it in like little chunks, it would be super hard to like, like the stratigraphy is so um, tricky in many ways. And like, all, like the gravel layers would be just really hard to see anything on such a small scale. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, the challenges of bringing like together such a big team and like maintaining sample quality and that kind of thing was quite mm. tricky at times but no I mean it's really good and like it was so well run you know like the sheer number of portalies <laughs> yeah no, heck of yeah no, cracking yeah. organisation in that regard I do think at some point I still haven't asked her yet but I think before I run the course of the podcast I really do want to have Amanda Clark come on and no, you should definitely yeah it's like the amount of insights she has on like how to run a successful field school must be huge i think her main point is always portaries though you need to have enough and like enough um marquee space for people to go when the weather's bad yeah. and it's always like ice lollies when it's really hot and that was great yeah 
Are you so in your capacity at the moment? Do you actually get to go out into the field much at the moment, or is much of it just lab based? Uh, yeah, so most of like my main project is working on um, archived assemblages. So I've been looking at the Danbury and Wyvern's assemblage that was what excavated back in the nineties and two thousands, and then material from Roman London that was you know. I guess, 1990s excavations. But I have a few side projects. Um, so last week, I was down in Cornwall um, working with Kate Freeman and Jamie Lewis on the South Canal project. Probably mispronounced the Cornish word. Um, but they were excavating um, a really fascinating um, Iron Age Roman round settlement um, just to the rest of blue. So that was really interesting because... Roman Cornwall was something that you don't really hear much about when you're mm. stuck in Britain. It's very much a kind of peripheral, quite kind of almost un-Roman part of the country. So yeah, it was really interesting just to you know, work down there for a few days. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's mainly working on small projects, well, small exploration projects where they need to start up an archaeobotanical programme um, so yeah, it's kind of like going out and figuring out what kind of art remains in there, how we're going to recover them, um, setting up like some um, registers and that kind of thing. So I was out in Jurash in Jordan. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, two years ago, working with Louise Blanca, which was great. Um, so the late antique Jurash project. So yeah, I got some fascinating samples from there. Yeah, so um, but on the whole, most of my time is spent in the lab or in the library. Yeah. And how about yourself? Do you get out in the field much? Uh, I, well, I did a, we did a small field school last year uh, at Kent. It was excavating uh, what looks to be a Bronze Age barrow, though. Not Actually, no, not probably not Bronze Age, probably even earlier than that. But it was prehistoric, so there's found two very small pieces of degraded pottery, which is great. But uh, no, not so much at the moment. But then I've done my share of things like commercial work and research projects, so I'm kind of happy to take my foot off the gas in that regard for a while. I mean, I miss it. I'd like to go back into the field, but I mean, I'm kind of hoping that in the university kind of sphere, that hopefully gives you the opportunity to eventually get involved in projects where like Silchester or Lamange, which is stuff that go on for six or eight weeks in the summer, so you can actually really like engage with something. Um, I'm not overly attracted to the idea of just going to something for like a week or two weeks or whatever. Like you know, you sort of yeah. when you're there for just a little bit, you don't really get as good an idea, I think, of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I do. That's the thing. Like if you turn up halfway through, like as a specialist, you kind of you miss all the in jokes, and it just takes a few days to kind of like you know adjust to the project. But yeah, and it's, I think it's also really good just for reminding you like that archaeology is really fun, and, like mm. really incredible, and working with you know um, like volunteers and students, it's great just to see people enjoying it, kind of without worrying about academia and publishing, and you know it just kind of brings the joy back, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean what I was saying like when you're at, like Silchester and you know it's lovely. Uh summer evening and you go to the pub or whatever after a hard day's uh, work on site it's uh, it's a sense of uh, a day a day well spent um, and feeling you know and, and just yeah enjoying those kind of summer evenings as well being outside because yeah it's particularly with the weather we've got at the moment as well um, it's what you it's what you want to be doing really yeah, no, like, yeah, like flotation time it's a great on a hot day you know 
We'll see. We'll see. Maybe, yeah, it would be great to have more of a kind of long-term fieldwork project, but we'll see. We'll see. I think maybe one with a beach nearby is always... When I finished Laminge back in 2009, I went, oh, I did Grampus Heritage and went to Cyprus for um, two okay. months. So yeah. we were literally excavating a like sixth century Christian basilica, which was on the coast. So we'd finish work, at, we'd start like work at 6am and then we'd finish at 2 and then just go to the beach for the afternoon and it was great. Uh, that, that, I think that was when I really, really fell in love with archaeology. And then I realized afterwards that that's not going to be like every dig I did. Then I did commercial work and I was still in a field with nothing in it for like weeks on end. Yeah, but I think on the whole, yeah, I'll be looking to do more excavations where there's just very little archaeobotanical data, which is pretty much Eastern Mediterranean parts of Italy. Yeah. But what are some of the things that have really emerged, though, in regards to Britain? So we were saying, like, the area of study has grown significantly in the last 10 years. Like, what sort of, are there, have there been any kind of things that have come up where you've gone, oh, wow, like, we didn't really expect that, or have been really surprising? Um, or just yeah. in general, like, what kind of, like, how has it changed our kind of image, particularly this transition from Iron Age to Roman period? Which I guess we should caveat with the fact that I guess when we say transition, we mean over a very long period. Like. Yeah, I mean, I guess it has a lot of a lot of farming settlements are continuing a lot of the same things, especially like over the initial transition period. There's a lot of continuation of settlements and lifestyles, and actually like a pretty limited impact of Rome on the daily lives of most people. But I think an interesting flip side to that is thinking about how a lot of people, a lot of the rural population weren't having a great time. I think, you know, there's been increasing amounts of work looking at, say, kind of well-being as a kind of economic proxy and arguing that, you know, everyone had, you know, a good diet and a generally quite good lifestyle. But the, so as part of a third Roman rural settlement book, there was um, some osteological work by um, Anna Warnberger, who's an osteologist, um, and basically showing that there's pretty high levels of poor health in rural populations in Britain. So um, they're not, you don't get a high incidence of things like dental caries. It might show like a lot of sugar consumption. Um, there's quite a lot of deficiencies in vitamins. So yeah, most of the rural population weren't particularly healthy. And I think that's really interesting because it's very easy to see farming as a quite a, almost like idealistic, you know, stress-free rural lifestyle but I think the reality was probably pretty different but I think it's quite hard finding data sets which kind of tell that story because most as you know like most rural settlements in terms of like enclosed farmsteads um, complex farmsteads they don't have masses of kind of archaeological information to necessarily tell us about everyday lives and kind of I guess well-being of people um, yeah. I don't know, what, what do you think is interesting in Roman Britain of late? Um, oh God, that's, that's assuming that I get much time, I've had much time out of teaching to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on. No, I think, I think when I was teaching Roman Britain, I did find the rural settlement discussion very interesting. Just the advances, you know, things like LIDAR as well and how it's kind of transforming our idea of what the landscape looks Absolutely. like in Roman Britain. Sure kind of variety is really important now like we know that there's you know very different patterns in terms of 
like chronological shifts of when settlements change in different parts of the country. We have different um, farming systems, so different emphasis on different like cattle or sheep, different crops being grown to some extent. So rather than one kind of homogenous Roman countryside, it's like lots of different, I guess, different forms of countryside. Yeah, but I think also like the archaeological science has had a huge impact, especially the kind of um, really interesting like strontium and oxygen studies. Um, so like the work of people like um, um, Rebecca Redfern, Becky Gowland, and um, Gundula Mulder and Hannah Eckhart, like looking at questions of um, mobility and immigration. That's all, you know, really fascinating. I think really important and is is really changing how we perceive like the Malay-British society. Yeah, but I think there's still you know huge open questions like about kind of connectivity and how different settlements were kind of linked together. So at the moment we have, we, you know, we know there's a lot of production of um, animal and plant resources in the countryside. You know, there's lots of um, pottery production, ironworking in some areas. But understanding like how the different settlements kind of link together and what processes of production is happening at different places and where the flows of that produce was going is quite hard to get at. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's quite interesting, yeah, because I suppose as our idea of the landscape of Roman changes and how people inhabited it, it does raise all these questions of how does this stuff get from point A to point B to point C, and as you say, what is the relationship that exists between, um, you know, a farmstead in the middle of the countryside and the forum in the middle of the town, like how does, you know, how does stuff move around and from one farmstead to another uh, defended nucleated settlement? Uh, Yeah. That's the term now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there was what this pervasive idea of like real estates in what the early eighties, and there was a book by um, is it Keith Brannigan, um, where you know it was perceived that like all of the farms would have been organised as real estates, and there was actually you know bigger forms of certain organisation that then we could see in the archaeological record. But then that was very much dismissed because we all know that settlement, like real estates, at least in Italy, could include settlements in many kind of different places. It wouldn't just be one coherent, tidy group. Um, so we've just kind of gone to the other end of seeing settlements as very much like separate entities. But there's now what several landscapes with masses of excavation. So I think like around Didcot has got one of the highest um, density of excavations. Places like the A14, um, excavations between Cambridge and Gumbster, you know, we have such a high density of rural settlement that it should hopefully be possible to start thinking about how they fit together hmm. rather than seeing them as kind of isolated farms. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> so you're saying, obviously, like, you've got all this work going on with the current project, but just to go off on a kind of tangent, um, obviously, you're all kind of thing I guess that takes up at least a fair, fair old portion of your time is uh, track as a member of the uh, standing committee for for how many years? Five I think yeah five yeah, yeah so I joined in um, 2014 yeah so the um, back track conference at the University of Reading yeah so five years so yeah. my term's coming up in the next back track 
which is happening in um, Split Way Diocletian's Palace. Yeah. <laughs> and the track Call for Papers is still open for a few months still. Yeah, That's so Call for Sessions, right? Not Call for Sessions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, cool session. But yeah, so during that time, there's 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 been a number of changes with, with track, including the the launch of the the track journal as well, uh, which you're currently editor in chief of, correct? Yeah. So we started. So basically, we wanted to turn the very you know long running and influential um, track proceedings into a journal, basically to help with continuity and um, help improve like, the quality of like, the publications, you know, we have more time, more ability to host um, supporting um, supplementary data, etc. And crucially, it's fully open access. So it means that people's work will be viewed, you know, by a lot more people than having a conference proceeding chapter, basically. Yeah, so we started, I guess, with the project back in 2015. So we've been kind of, you know, talking for a few years. It would be great to, to make the, um, the flip. Um, and we found an organisation called the Open Library of Humanities, which is fantastic, which enables journals in the humanities to um, publish for the open access without any author or reader facing fees, which is great because there's huge problems in especially in the sciences and increasingly in the humanities and the social sciences where to publish open access you need to pay APCs um, which can be pretty expensive and if you don't have a big funding grant pretty much impossible to pay. So yeah we basically established Drage um, as a way to get around that problem and provide I think a really exciting publication menu because if you look at Roman archaeology you know, we have like region journals like Britannia, um, Gallia, you know, Germania, and we have like JRA. But then, other than that, it's, there's not many places where you can read about Roman archaeology beyond one province or beyond one type of material. So, what there's a journal of Roman military equipment, there's um, Factor, what the journal of Roman material culture. But so everything is very much like either cut up into. Um, area-specific journals or material-specific journals. So I think it's really great to have a new publication menu where we can, um, you know, publish interdisciplinary studies across spanning multiple areas and multiple um, forms of evidence. And also to publish more, like, critical papers. So we've got a really cool paper out on um, post-nationalism by Amy Hanscom and, like, a lot more, I guess, theoretically creative papers, which I think is really good, yeah. I mean, when you step down from the committee next year then do you carry on will you carry on working on trash or do you also step away from that as well or are you <laughs> um yeah so i'll probably carry on working on trash for a few years at least so you know because I, mean, I was gonna say because it's only obviously launched in the last couple of years so i guess it's still kind of going through growing pains is it maybe yeah, or not, not growing pains but obviously it's a lot of work establishing the journal um, yeah. and you know there's a lot of kind of things we decided, especially as people, you know, with forms of data and um, materials that archaeologists are publishing now is, is hugely kind of grown. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of kind of thinking about how, you know, what kind of 
bioinformal labs to encourage and things like research data depositing and all that kind of thing. So yeah, no, I'll definitely stay involved for a few years and kind of never see it into its not middle age. I mean, um, you know, see it past its initial kind of birth. But yeah. But there will never be a vacancy on the track standing committee. <laughs> so yeah, we'll be looking for new members. Um, yeah, to really take the organisation on into its 30th, well, 30, 30s. So um, track is going to be 30 um, in the split. Yeah, so 2019. Yeah, so track was founded in 1989. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting my years right. Yeah, so it's going to be track's 30th birthday. So I think it's grown a lot kind of the last 10 years. But I, yeah, so we've kind of, there's been a lot of steps to kind of make it more sustainable in the long term. So we've got like a website, a journal, obviously, um, trying to make more of a kind of ongoing community from year to year. Yeah. One of the things I usually ask people is how do they see things developing in future in regards to the field? And just following on from that, do you see in the next, I don't know, five years or so, open access becoming more common uh, in terms of the availability of, of resources online? Because uh, I know you're quite an advocate for that, but obviously there are quite a lot of journals. I mean, okay, older issues you can get quite easily, but I mean, you mentioned Gallia a moment ago, and Gallia obviously is a French journal, so kind of beyond our, our kind of sphere of influence maybe, but um, even still... I was trying to get like one of the recent issues from like 2000 or something or other and the the older issues are, are available but more the issues from like probably last 10 years aren't so it's yeah that's just frustrating because I've got to go and try and find a hard copy of it in London I think um, but do you think there will be more in the way of open access do you think that's going to become more and more common do you think that's just, or is it just inevitable really it's not so it's a really interesting question and in some ways in Britain it's going to be inevitable because of a thing called Plan S, which is a kind of um, a, a group of European open access advocates who have come up with a kind of plan for, um, I guess, a pathway towards full open access quicker. And um, the UKRI are a kind of supportive of that plan, which means that it's going to be implemented in some form in the UK, so anyone working in a UK HE institution will have to, will be impacted by it. So Plan S calls for, I need to check the details, but pretty much full open access publication um, without any postprint. So either postprint, uh, okay, so there's lots of terminologies. So basically it's going to have a huge impact on journals. Um, and, you know, in many ways, open access is great. It means that archaeologists working outside of um, universities can access um, academic work, which is fantastic. So it's ridiculous the amount of work published using data from commercial explorations, which then anyone working in the commercial company can't access because it's paywalled. But there are many challenges which are pretty... It's a pretty big problem, essentially. I mean, lots of archaeology journals are published by learned societies, or well, not published by, but it's published by, say, like CUP, but then it's the learned societies journal. So, um, part of the funding for learned societies, 
stems for journals. So it's going to have, if like if that flow of revenue is stopped, then there's going to be a problem mm. in essence. So we're kind of a broad, you know, I'm really keen for broad open access, but finding sustainable pathways towards it is really complicated, especially in disciplines like archaeology and humanities where there just isn't as much reliance on large um, funded projects as there is in saber sciences. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of changes, I think, in the next few years. And yeah, it's something that everyone should, well, we'll have to kind of keep an eye on. Another, another thing would then be like open access monographs. So we're waiting to hear what the UKRI open access monograph policy is going to be. So if all monographs also need to be open access per ref, then yeah, and that's another really big challenge. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, open access just hasn't been debated that much in archaeology. I mean, like, do you feel that it's been discussed much in conferences or? Uh, no, but, um, I guess not really. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know because I mean, it's like even with like PhD thesis, like like most libraries now, you have the option to make it open access when you're done with it. I decided to embargo mine until I finished the book. Then I just lifted the embargo because now I'm like now the book's the more kind of yeah. finished version. Also, if anybody's listening and they want a copy of the book, just email me. I will send it to you for free. Don't have to worry about buying it. But now <laughs> I'm all for open access in that regard. Well, that's that's the question, really. I but suppose. That's using like academia.edu or researchgate and you know, people think that putting their work on those websites is enabling open access but it's not it's just infringing your copyright well yeah that's the thing like if people hear this I'll be in trouble but they won't listen to the podcast um, <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm not like I'm not like doling out a copy to everybody but if if somebody like a, a somebody I know in the field wants to read it and they've got like vested interest in it I don't mind giving them a digital copy like to share around Obviously, we'd love all of our work to be completely open, as an open to read at least. Um, I don't think anyone would argue against that, really. Oh, actually, though, I think I think the contract does say that I am allowed to share it with people. It's like you know, I'm not putting it online for anybody to download, and so you have to contact me and ask me, and I give I give people a copy. So I actually no, I backtrack on that. I am sticking to the terms of my contract. <laughs> and that's good, that they, yeah, that's that's great, but. Um, yeah, I think on the whole, it's, it's how to how to achieve open access in a sustainable way. And yeah. there's each question that everybody knows the answer. But if you're interested in it, there's a really interesting session happening at TAG um, in December. Myself and Zina Kamesh. Yeah, um, former guest so, of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. So um, we're talking, it's all like publishing power. So kind of debating like the whole range of power imbalances in publishing and yeah kind of trying to open the can of fish no can of worms yeah so you know we, <laughs> trying to open the can of worms um you know because people don't really talk about things like peer review you know the kind of it's all seen as a kind of you know quite a hush hush thing and i think it's really important as a you know as a discipline we actually talk openly about what kind of publishing we want and you know who's gonna pay for that 
right? Because there's so much unpaid labour happening in the publishing ecosystem. And then, yeah, I just, I just think there's a huge number of issues that would be best to discuss. Well, I mean, as you say, it's a dialogue going forward. That's the thing. It's uh, yeah, it needs to be dis- it needs to be discussed. And uh, yeah, it's uh, well, it's like so much nowadays. Like everything changes so rapidly, and uh, it's very difficult, I think, to to entirely understand the ramifications of these changes because of how quickly they're happening and, and trying to understand them. So it's about getting people together to discuss how best to um, to address address these transformations. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's. It's going to affect people, and it's not, and it's going to have unequal effects on people. So if you have, you know, like if you have a AHRC funded PhD studentship, then I think you'll have funding to publish open access, and then that means you'll probably get more citations, and your work will probably be used more in, say, teaching or reading lists. Um, so like a decision of who does and who doesn't get funding, like at the start of a PhD, will then be impacting how they can publish in like four years' time, which is a pretty unfair, to be honest. So yeah, I just think it's, you know, really important to discuss discuss these factors. Yeah. Yeah. So make it a tag to to Yeah, come to tag. No, it is totally getting it. It's not at the best time of year for many people. I've never Um, been, but I'm gonna try and go this year because it's in London so I should be able to to make it. Yeah, and it's Great, because you actually see people from across the whole of archaeology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've said, people have said this before on the on the podcast a number of times. One of the big things to try and do is is get out of that kind of bubble of going to the same conferences and seeing the same people, but actually, you know, sharing our ideas across people looking at different periods and different uh, different approaches to the materials. And yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. No, I am I am hoping to go this year. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Just sort of moving towards towards wrapping up, I had one quick question that I should have asked earlier, but I just wanted to get it in there. Because one of the things I'm interested about is like the crossover between people's kind of lives outside of academia and what they study. Are you much of a gardener? Have you become more of a gardener yeah, through doing archaeobotany? Have you gotten, has, it, have you, has the bug ever bitten you for it? Or? Yeah, so um, since moving into a house, yeah, I have like a pretty good vegetable plot. Um, mm. Yeah, I just, I do really like growing plants. I mean, I have a lot of house plants um, and I have had for like the last like six years. Um, yeah, it's, it's really fun. It's, and it's a good, I guess it's like a, a small step towards like getting a dog because like you have to look after your plants right or they die so um yeah that was something nice to like make you you have to like come home and like go in the garden and stops you from working and helps you you know to kind of wind down and yeah just getting our first harvest so getting some broad beans which is great and then kind of i guess seriously it's really helpful to like understand plants more right because i spend all my time a lot of my time counting seeds um, and actually thinking through like what does it mean to like grow them like how does the growth cycle work throughout the year um, I think it's really important you could say yeah. it's almost like a form of experimental archaeology in, in some respects yeah no, it would be great to do some at some point um, so a lot of like half of what my project is is looking at um, corn drying ovens or molten kilns and trying to better understand well, kind of how they work they started how they fit into um like cereal producing economies and yeah part of that is we could really do building one but i need quite a big space and i guess a lot of health and safety checks before hmm. but yeah i think that's we'd definitely love to do that in the next few years would you if you were living in the countryside in rome britain 
Would your diet have been pretty tasty or would it have just been very plain and just the ish so yeah so when rural settlements that have like waterlogged plant remains have been studied um they have some flavoring so things like coriander um celery dill and then a few fruits so things like apple um plum those kind of things would would have been eaten um you know even what we call like close farmstead. So yeah, it would have been tastier than the Iron Age, I guess, but um, not like nowhere near as diverse as say like Pompeii or Rome. Um, yeah, hmm. tasty enough. Tasty enough, enough to get by. <laughs> yeah, enough to get by. Yeah, yeah and um, yeah, yeah, bits and bobs of, of kind of well, so mainly you would have been eating what mutton, beef. People eat dormice that often, or is that just one of those things that get banded around? <laughs> I'm sure some people did, but yeah, um, with zero archaeology would say no in Britain at least. But yeah, I'm sure lots of dormice were eaten somewhere, somewhere in the Roman world. But yeah, not a major like staple. So tying it out, then, have you got anything that you you'd like to promote at the moment? I mean, we touched on quite a number of things. There's obviously track. Next track is in split. The yeah. theoretical Roman archaeology journal um, yeah. has got ongoing stuff coming out with that. Yeah, that, I mean that's amazing. Oh, tag, tag session as well. That was the other one. Yeah, tag session. So means even tag session, and then um, I'm running a conference next year in Oxford um, on open science principles in environmental archaeology research. So talking about like open data and open research and like reproducible research frameworks. Yeah, so that's with the um, Association for Environmental Archaeology oh. in March. So yeah, lot, lots of things lined up. Busy, yeah. Uh, yeah. If people want to find you on social media, if you're on Twitter and... So I'm on Twitter just um, at Lisa Lodrick and I mainly just tweet pictures of seeds, but that's what you're into. Um, Very on brand. Yeah, on brand. <laughs> oh, and limpets, yeah. Mainly seeds and limpets. But hey. Okay. Uh, anything else to talk to sell? Not sure. I think. Is that everything? Yeah. Um, conferences. Oh, Silchester Open Day. Yeah. So um. we're the University of Reading Excavations at Silchester. That is an open day on. When is it? Sixth of ah, yes, Saturday. Oh, maybe it's too soon. Yeah, there's an open day on the sixth of July. Okay. Well, well done to anybody that went to the open day. Yeah, so if you went, <laughs> have a great time. It looks, yeah, the archaeology looks really awesome. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's we okay. Can, Thanks for asking. We can put a lid back on this can of fish. <laughs> <laughs> can of fish. Yeah, always get that one confused. Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. 
The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.